I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. We're recording this episode on the 29th of April, 2021. It's an especially difficult time with a, a surge in infections all across India. I want to thank you, listener, for joining us even in these circumstances, and I hope you're doing all that is needed to cope with this situation. Today's episode is a special one. I'm joined by Dr. Virginie Salou from Paris. Uh, Dr. Salou is a research professor in geopolitics and maritime spaces at the French Navy School. She has uh, something like 15 years of experience working both in the French government and in academia. She's worked in the Prime Minister's office, in the Ministry of the Armed Forces, at the European Commission, and in academia, all of it in maritime affairs. Dr. Salu is also the perfect person to talk about maritime cooperation between India and France, which is our topic today. She was Deputy Coordinator for the Security of Maritime Spaces for the French Armed Forces Ministry. And when she was there, she was deeply involved in setting up the high-level India-France Maritime Dialogue. She's still in act- acting as an advisor for France's Maritime Administration. She's working on maritime security and related issues, including blue economy matters, with a special focus on the Gulf of Guinea. So, uh, Dr. Salu, welcome to All Things Policy. It's great to have you here. Yes, thank you. It's a, a real pleasure for, for me to um, do this interview with the, with your foundation and with India, of course, uh, which is one of the topics uh, I really like uh, to speak about. Wonderful. Okay, so I want to start by asking you a question about yourself. Can you tell us what got you interested in maritime affairs and naval affairs? Um, Okay, so perhaps that would require a fairly long psychoanalysis, but uh, (laughs) I'll do my best. Um, First, I grew up in a coastal village. So I think seas and oceans were always part of my life. Maybe more um, importantly, uh, several men of my family were sailors in the merchant navy and uh, in the French navy. So this familiarized me very early. With, with the challenges faced by the navies and especially with the dangers of the sea. Another reason uh, is that this is the most fascinating subject I have had to work on. Maritime issues are constantly evolving. They require special attention, specific knowledge, and at the same time, they affect all areas in the world quite in the same way. So, to my opinion, it is the core topic of the future of the planet. I try to contribute to its better understanding for new generations. Wonderful. Yeah, I think I over here at Takshashila, we would completely agree with you that it's one of the most important topics of the coming decades. I'm just speaking specifically about France, before we get to the India-France dialogue, you know, France is both a maritime power, but it also is a continental power with these very deep interests in the European continent. So how has France seen the maritime domain and how has this changed or evolved over the years? Hmm. You're perfectly right. Um, several geopolitical studies show that in France, or uh, it may be better to say, was done between a land-based approach and maritime attraction. First, uh, I will stress the fact that 
or deep interest in the European affairs are not disconnected from maritime issues. In fact, a large part of safety of Europe goes through safer seas and oceans. So in that respect, uh, France plays a leading role to develop a maritime Europe and to increase interest of European countries for maritime challenges, even though those challenges geez, uh, seems very far away. For example, European Union adopted recently a strategy for the Indo-Pacific region, and it was done under French pressure. But concerning France's attitude towards maritime affairs, um, I would like to separate the interests of the states, those of the politicians, and those of the citizens. The French state has, for a very long time now, taken seas and oceans into consideration. It is customary to recall that one of Louis XIV's advisors, named Colbert, had forest planted to develop the French Navy. And it was 350 years ago, so <laughs> this is not new. And after, with the law of the Sea Convention, France became the second world maritime domain. It gave us rights, of course. But more importantly, it gave us duties and a form of moral obligation to participate to world maritime issues. And of course, to fulfill our global responsibilities and commitments. On the other hand, you're right. If France committed itself into maritime issues since a long time, the deep interest of French politicians and French citizens is more recent. Climate change, maritimization of the world, environmental challenges led to a better integrated approach of maritime issues. It is now a major topic for us, taken into account by all the actors private or public, as evidenced uh, by the recent appointment of a minister of the sea. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you talked about maritimization. So uh, you know, this obviously partly is the context of globalization. And, and like you pointed out, climate change uh, estimates tell us typically that something like 90% of international trade by volume travels by sea today. How does this maritimization, uh, how, how has it influenced France's thinking? How is it different today than it was, say, 50 years back? Um, at the very beginning, maritimization was quite only an economic notion. It was used to describe the increase of international exchanges by sea started during the 70s. But more and more, it takes shape of an important part of globalization, as you said. And uh, now, maritimization refers to the growing importance of ocean in world affairs, globally speaking. This is not anymore only an economic concept, but this is also a cultural and social one. Nowadays, seas and oceans are not only physically occupied, inhabited or claimed, they are also politically and culturally appropriated. Nations instill a form of maritime culture among citizens by developing maritime policies and strategies, and almost all countries in the world develop maritime policies and include now sea and oceans in their strategic priorities. France and India, we know it, of course, but also Australia, Japan, the US, China, Russia, countries from the Gulf of Guinea, and so on. On the other hand, citizens are increasingly aware of the importance of the role played by seas and oceans in their everyday life, as nourishing sea, climate regulator. Um, so today, maritimization well, it's first the key word to understanding the modern world. And to my opinion, in practical terms, maritimization refers to several parallel phenomena. The first one 
there is a growing land-based approach of maritime spaces, which is quite contradictory. But by this term of land-based approach, I refer both to a greater human occupation of maritime spaces and to an increased use of land tools to organize maritime spaces, like maritime spatial planning, for example. Secondly, you can notice a growing rivalry between explorers for the appropriation of maritime spaces and, of course, for the capture of maritime, marine resources. This is manifested very clearly by the numerous claims on contested maritime spaces on island. The third point I would like to stress is the increasing dependence on sea. You know, Sir Wallet said in his time, who holds the sea, holds the world, when speaking of the need to control the world's sea routes and especially the access points to this region. This remains quite true. 90% of trade is made by sea. This is an essential issue. But most of, most of, most important is the control of maritime routes. You can see the proliferation of military bases in Djibouti. It attested, uh, but it goes even further. It is no longer enough to see the sea as a place of circulation of goods or common dependence on the sea. And I mean by common dependence, all the nation of the world, whether they have a seafront or are landlocked, is only growing. It is global. Our dependency is commercial, as we said, but it's also energetic as regards fossil fuel for the transport, new discoveries in offshore, or even renewable energies. For example, India imports nearly 85% of its crude oil needs, most of which passes by sea. And the development of alternative energy, such as wind power, also passes by sea. For example, according to the website Global Data, offshore wind is expected to grow by more than 16% per year by 2030. And Europe and China are very active in this area. This is very challenging. Another well-known dependence on the sea, I would like to stress, is our dependence on sea resources for our livelihoods, both to feed us and to heal us. This starts with an increase in global fish consumption. 20 kilograms per person per year compared to 9 in the 50s. Fishery products provide on average 20% of the protein intake of 3 billion people. But the number of legal fish capture did not evolve. So illegal fishing is evolving. <laughs> and at the same time, the sea does not only provide fish. It also allows the transport of food, thus um, three. 100 million tons of cereal pass through the world main maritime straits each year. In the field of health, marine resources have considerable potential. A marine worm exploited by a French company, Brittany, for example, provides now universal blood, allowing significant advances in the field of transplant or in the reduction of cerebral edemas. And last but not least, our dependence is communicational. 99% of exchanges are carried out via submarine cables. Their security is an essential stake to maintain the fluidity of the exchanges and the strategic autonomy of the states. In short, the, the resources provided by seas and ocean cover all aspects of our daily lives, but being both difficult to access and in limited number, they are highly coveted. Dependence on the sea 
has thus increased, but so has interdependence between states. And this dependence has several consequences to ensure the sustainability of these resources, the development of activities that seem must be sustainable. And we can clearly see that blue economy is a global issue with, which must be accompanied by protection of resources. Politically, there is, there is no official definition of blue economy, but traditionally, it is considered as a global tool, taking into consideration all economic and social aspects of sea and ocean in a sustainable way. Uh, but this definition misses definitely the security dimension. And that's why the development of marine protected areas, particularly in the ICs at the current UN negotiation on BBNG attested, um, BBNG meaning uh, biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. The development of marine protected areas are essential. But this protective dimension is not enough. Blue economy must be supported by securing maritime areas policies, covering the entire spectrum of risk and threats. Economy and security goes hand by hand. To preserve fishery resources, it is necessary to have policies to preserve stocks, but also to promote control at sea to fight against illegal fishing. In this case, very quickly, this policing activity can gain in intensity. L let me give you an example with illegal fishing. This is normally a non-military activity, but it can quickly increase in intensity with armed illegal fishermen opening fire. This happening in French waters in Guyana, in the Gulf of Guinea, illegal fishing is a major concern. Let me take another example. The increase of interest in offshore oil and gas fields is generating great tensions, leading to an escalation of conflicting postures at sea, bordering on open confrontation. This echoes what is happening between Turkey and Greece in the Med Sea, for example. Last August, maneuvers led to a collision between a Greek frigate and a Turkish one, and situations like this can quickly become very tense. So what I mean to sum up is that our increased dependence on marine and maritime resources, which are not inexhaustible, leads to a tense competition between the main actors at sea, between traffickers and states, or between states themselves. And this results in two main consequences. The majority of states all over the world are developing their capacities to intervene at sea. And this leads to what is called a weaponization of seas. With that come a rise in risk and threats. And what we are seeing now is that the great world powers are measuring themselves far from the media on the oceans. Second consequences, navies are increasingly called upon to deal with issues ranging from low to high intensity. A chance that can be done in a few minutes. And this requires having a flexible system to adapt to all situations. Uh, thanks, Dr. Salyu. You've uh, painted uh, the broader picture for us about how the maritime domain is uh, crucial to our prosperity, security, to ecological protection, and even our own personal well-being. You know, this podcast that we're recording right now is enabled by the fact that we have submarine cables on the seabed right now. 
so, you know, it encompasses all our activities. One interesting point that you made was that, you know, navies and authorities in general are being called on to deal with these sort of combined or, if you will, hybrid threats, everything from low intensity to high intensity. I'm bringing this up because uh, in France, you have this unique model of state, which you call state action at sea. From what I understand, this is both uh, an administrative principle and an organizational principle. Can you tell us a little more about it and how it helps you, how it helps France deal with these uh, complex challenges that we're seeing today? Um, yeah, sure. It, it will be my pleasure. So in France, to, to have the global picture, uh, the state does three main things at sea. Special organization of activities in order to promote maritime economy. Police at sea in order to reconcile its activities and to protect them. And finally, maritime defense of the territory, meaning taking into account threats coming from the sea and, and from very far from the coast, which is called defense in depth, threats that could affect the integrity of the national territory. Almost all French administration contribute to the success of this task under the authority of the prime minister. And each with complementary work. As regard to police at sea and maritime defense of the territory, our Navy plays a central role. And the French model for the control and police of activities at sea is quite specific, as you said it. Countries like Portugal, Spain, Ivory Coast, Senegal, Togo have adopted quite similar models. But I must say the French model is undoubtedly one of the oldest and maybe uh, one of the most completed. So to explain what is state action, I'd say I will say that it's, there is a central figure in our system, you must know. This is a maritime prefect or prefect maritime. It was put in place uh, since Napoleon, but uh, more precisely concerning the actual or the current French state action at sea, it was put in place in 1978. And rather than creating a special coast guard, France has chosen a single authority at sea and multi-purpose means coming from various administrations intervening at sea. That means that our system is interministerial, coordinated at central level by the General Secretariat for the Sea under the direct authority of the Prime Minister and coordinated at local level by the maritime prefect. Precisely, state action at sea covers mission of public interest that the state performs at sea with its own resources, excluding defense missions. And you're right, this organization is political, administrative, and operational. How does it work? First, the prime minister entrusts the representation of the state to a single administrative authority the Maritime Prefect, which acts in geographical area called the Maritime Zone, and which includes both areas under the jurisdiction of France and international areas. In our model, um, we've got uh, oceans divided into 10 zones, three in metropolitan France, five overseas, including the South, in, the South Indian Ocean Zone, and two not including any French maritime area, the Pacific Maritime Zone, and the Indian Ocean Maritime Zone. Um, doing so, France is able to intervene 
on all the oceans of the world to enforce the law, whether national or international. Second point, the field of actions is clearly set. The missions are 45 in number. They were fixed by a decree in 2007, and these missions are distributed among the administrations having means of intervention at sea. Concretely, it can be a matter of monitoring approaches, containing an oil slick, saving fishermen in detress, but also arresting drug traffickers or pirates. And the third pillar of this system is to bet on the versatility of the means of all the administration. French maritime means are considered multipurpose. Each administration, in that case, remains responsible for its own missions, but it also participates in other missions, when necessary, and at the request of the maritime prefect. This gives us great flexibility. Each person in charge of the administration concerned, um, could it be maritime affairs, custom, defense, police, remains in charge of its resources. To make it maybe very, very clear, in case of major oil pollution, the maritime prefect can call means coming from police, custom, maritime affairs, navy, and will coordinate the action to reduce the pollution. No one but him as the responsibility of the operation. That is really fascinating because I've not seen anything like a, a maritime prefect. Uh, certainly, I mean, maybe, like you said, Portugal has adopted something similar, but it was a new idea to me when I first read about it. Uh, can you just tell me very quickly, if is the maritime prefect someone who is appointed every time a new government comes to power in France? Or how, how is that uh, person selected? Is it? No, in fact, this unique maritime authority, uh, the maritime prefect for a metropolitan France and the general delegate of the government in overseas territories is, in fact, uh, both a state representative for the state action agency, but also the maritime zone commander from a military point of view. And this comes in handy for the speed and effectiveness of the response as the nature of the threats evolve, because this maritime prefect is an admiral so he can respond to the chain of command, the military chain of, of command, and also uh, to the civilian chain of command, changing in this chain of command if the threat evolves, you know, if the intensity of the threat evolves. And this maritime prefect has several missions. First, he has to defend sovereign rights and the interest of the nation. That means that uh, he will be in charge of protecting marine resources, fighting against trafficking and illegal fishing, for example. Second mission, he has to maintain public order at sea, in particular, uh, ensuring that there are no blockage of maritime communication routes. Third mission may be quite unusual, more unexpected. Uh, this is to protect the marine environment. The prefect, mm, the maritime prefect, is the one who is responsible for the good conservation of the mar marine environment, in particular for the establishment and monitoring of marine protected areas and the protection of endangered species. This is not the Ministry of Environment who is in charge, this is the maritime prefect. And finally, he organized operation to combat pollution at sea. First mission, 
the maritime prefect is responsible for safeguarding people and property. And, last one, he coordinates the fight against illicit activities, whether it is against drugs, trafficking, or against illegal immigration. So, as you can see, he has substantial powers and varied mission. But that doesn't mean that he is acting alone. 17 major French administrations are involved. The Ministry of Armed Forces, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Justice, and so on. And among this administration, our Navy is called upon in 44 of the 45 missions established by the decree. This gives it a significant role. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really fascinating to see how, how France uh, thinks about maritime affairs in this holistic manner and, and has an administrative system designed to respond to those complicated issues uh, in that way. But, you know, so we, now we've set the stage where we've understood a little more about how France looks at maritime issues. So moving on to the Indian Ocean specifically, most observers would not normally think of France as an Indian Ocean power, right? But actually, France has a sovereign territory in, of its own in the Western Indian Ocean, as you pointed out. Can you tell us a little bit about France's presence in the Indian Ocean region? And also, what are France's aims there? Mm, okay. Well, um, that France is present in the Indian Ocean is, in fact, hardly surprising. It should be self-evident. Because France is not only a European country known for its capital city, Paris. It must be seen, to my opinion, first and foremost, as an archipelago. Uh, the main island, if I may say so, is indeed located on the European continent, but other parts of the archipelago are scattered on all of the planets. And that's why France is a sovereign nation of the Indo-Pacific region, because half of the French overseas territories are located in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific Ocean, which represent a total of 1.6 million inhabitants. Well, I know very few compared to India, but still. And um, more precisely, French territories of the Indian Ocean are located in the west, you said it, with Mayotte, Homeland, and Pass Island, very close to Madagascar and the Mozambique Channel. In the south, with La Réunion Island, in the far south, if I may say it uh, like this, with the Kerguelen Island, uh, which makes us neighbors by sea with Australia. Economies of our main Indian Ocean island generate around 20 billion euro per year. This economy is necessarily linked to the sea, since they are islands. And from an even more maritime point of view, there are 3 million square kilometers of the French EEZ, Economic Exclusive Zone, in the Indian Ocean, and 9 million out of 11 held by our country, located in the Indo-Pacific region. So, it's a lot, but the French presence does not stop here. We are around 150,000 French nationals around the Indian Ocean, and they can rely on dense diplomatic and military network. Our country has, for example, no less than 25 permanent diplomatic representations around the Indian Ocean, uh, we've got also 8,000 French soldiers spread over this Indo-Pacific area, including 4,100 in the Indian Ocean and located on most of the major strategic routes, Djibouti towards Europe, the United Arab Emirates um, bases on the Hobart, Mayotte at the gates of the Mozambique Channel, and La Réunion towards Cap Town. 
or preposition forces are important allies for rapid intervention in the region. And finally, if I wanted to push this metaphor of the archipelago, I will add to our fixed physical concrete um, island or mobile island. We got uh, 28 military assets, including five warships, which are permanently based in the Indian Ocean. And this is without counting regular deployments from the mainland, such as the Joan of Heart mission or surveillance missions or participation in naval operations in the region like Atalanta. Our naval presence is strong in the Indian Ocean, but also visible in other parts of the world, in the Med Sea, in the Gulf of Guinea, but also in the Arctic Ocean, for example, so many places where India also has interest. So in, in view of all these facts, France naturally contributes to maritime security and safety in the Indian Ocean to protect um, its own interest, of course, but also to commit with its maritime global power responsibilities, uh, especially in the field of um, freedom of navigation. That is so fascinating. I, I really like your uh, reconceptualizing of France's geography as, <laughs> as an archipelago. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And uh, it's also really interesting to hear about uh, the extent of France's presence, both diplomatic and military, in the Indian Ocean region. And, you know, you pointed out that, in a sense, France is actually neighbors with Australia, which is an interesting fact. Now, when France has such a spread out presence in the Indian Ocean region, you know, it's it brings up its own challenges, right? So what are the major risks and the threats that France sees in the Indian Ocean today? Uh, maybe I don't know for France, but I, I will tell you uh, what I, I think we have to face um, yeah. in the Indian Ocean. So uh, to begin, I, I, I would say that uh, one of the main threats to a state in the Indian Ocean, but also in other seas, maybe, or ocean of the world, uh, is to uh, fight against attempts on its sovereignty, on its strategic autonomy. And I will try to explain it by linking the main maritime risks and threats present in the Indian Ocean to blue economy. So the world economy is, uh, it has been said, highly dependent on trade by sea, and the world's largest sea routes pass through the Indian Ocean. At the same time, maritime transport is a key element in promoting a sustainable planet. But maritime transport ensures also state strategic autonomy by providing them with goods, energy, or telecommunications. In the Indian Ocean, maritime transport is threatened as it's to gateway by piracy or terrorism. In strategic areas, such as the Strait of Babel Mandeb or the Strait of Hormuz, state threats coming from destabilized states increase the risk of disruption to maritime transport. So, Freedom of navigation, especially in strategic passages, must therefore be a priority. On another hand, the IMO is also working on an increased digitization of maritime transport, which may in fact generate an increased risk of cyber attacks. And finally, the protection of submarines cable linking Europe to Asia, in particular in financial and communication terms, must be at the heart of our priorities. More globally speaking, what I would like to say is securing trade by sea guaranteeing supplies to states and securing their communication is a fundamental issue. This requires interstate cooperation, 
aimed at preserving the proper application of the law of the sea. The second element, maybe, that I would like to highlight is the issue of islands and their resources. Ireland gathered a large number of risk and threats, political destabilization, maybe because of economic difficulties, and terrorist risk uh, increasingly affecting Ireland also, as evidenced uh, by the level of radicalization uh, in the Maldives um, in 2020, attack on Chinese and Australian tourists affects one of the island main resources, namely tourism, which is one of the pillars of the economy also. On the other hand, the resources of the maritime spaces conferred by Ireland are also extremely coveted. And some island governments do not have the political, military or economic resources to oppose the plunder of their resources. Support coming both from France and India and other countries in this area, is essential. Avoiding illegal capture of marine resources is vital. And finally, islands are the first victims of climate change. First, in the face of an increase in number and in intensity of storms, and then in the face of the risk of submersion. Risk of flooding and storms are particularly important for the Indo-Pacific region. Likewise, climate change will not only affect Ireland. <laughs> states or part of states are bound to disappear with submersion. Others will see their farmlands dry up. Fishing communities will see fish migrate and their resources decrease. So, anticipating the issue of climate refugees, environmental degradation linked to rising sea levels, and the increase in natural disasters are priority issues for the Indian Ocean. The last two elements affecting both economies and sovereignty of states are the protection of ocean resources and the fight, the fight against organized crime. Drugs of fake medicines trafficking circulating from the Pakistani or Iranian coast to Africa or Europe via several hubs like Yemen, Mozambique, Maldives constitute parallel economies which endanger the health of populations and the stability of states, due not only but um, because of possible links with terrorist networks. Drugs trafficking by sea in the Indian Ocean is on the rise, and so are also drugs seizures. In March, for example, French Army ships seized in one week in the Indian Ocean 8.7 tons of drugs transiting by sea. That means as much as during 2020, all mission combined. This is huge. And finally, the last challenge I want to mention, but no less important, is that of illegal fishing and the looting and degradation of ocean resources. IUU fishing leads to a collapse of sustainable fishing, and it represents an estimated loss of $24 billion per year. It is likely to strongly destabilize the countries of the region. Marine pollution, added to that, could have similar effect on fisheries resources. So, a strengthening of the establishment of marine protected areas, ecosystem restoration policy, coupled with effective tools against pollution, ranging from hydrocarbons to plastics, appear urgent, to my opinion. Okay, and Dr. Selyuk, can you tell us what you think are the implications of China's increasing presence in the Indian Ocean region? Uh, yes. First, what, what I would like to say is that China, 
like other countries in the world, is well aware of the importance of the maritimization of the world. So China is developing its interest, its growing interest in marine resources, particularly in fishery resources. And it's positioned in strategic areas such as Djibouti, both to assert its place as a great world power, maybe, but also to contribute to the protection of maritime routes, since 90% of its trade is also passing by sea and nearly 80% of its energy supplies. And it is therefore understandable that uh, China is asserting its presence in the Indian Ocean, where it also has a large diaspora. Uh, but what is certain, however, is that this increased presence with substantial naval means is a source of tension. Even if the motivation may be quite respectable and understandable, such a large increase in military resources, in military in naval means, can only lead to suspicion and maybe to fear. So it also inevitably leads to a temptation for the neighboring countries of the Indian Ocean to increase their own military resources. And the risk is then an escalation of tensions and a military escalation. It is therefore necessary to maintain a dialogue, dialogue, I think, that respects international rules. And France, in this context, is very attentive to ensuring that the freedom of the seas and the protection of marine resources are at the heart of everyone's priorities. Thanks. Uh, so right now, India and France have already laid the foundation for uh, their maritime cooperation. There's a maritime dialogue on maritime cooperation. Can you tell us some of the ways in which this can be expanded sustainably over the coming years, given that, like you said, maritime interests are so uh, broadly defined and there is you know, scope for uh, multiple forms of engagement between the two countries. Uh, how can it, they be expanded? Um, yes, first, well, as you, as you said, India and France are already cooperating in naval and maritime fields. Uh, it started with the establishment of naval cooperation between our navies, performing joint exercises like Varuna, for example, uh, with 19th edition involving the participation of the French Navy aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle on its entire carrier strike group just completed. But our cooperation then intensified with the establishment in 2016 of the high-level dialogue focused solely on maritime issues. It took the form of reciprocal access to ports or in February 2020 of a joint patrol in the South Indian Ocean. So first, I think strengthening interoperability between our navies is, however, a priority. Another avenue for cooperation would be, to my opinion, to develop strategies, if not common, at least similar, systematically linking blue economy to securing maritime areas policies across a whole spectrum of risk and threat. And I, I think this approach could be jointly promoted in international fora. Uh, this could be accompanied by mutual support in this regional and multinational fora. As the announcement by the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs during the last regional dialogue of French contribution to the Indian Indo-Pacific Ocean Initiative in the field of the fight 
against IUU fishing goes in this, dire in this direction. A third way of cooperation can be found around the issue of Ireland. There are two aspects to consider, to my opinion. On the other, on the one hand, we must help these territories to develop their economy and to fight against global warming. On the other hand, we have to avoid territorial destabilization. Uh, one of your researchers, Darshana Berrois' proposal to favor Sister Highland in this respect is a very interesting idea to explore because France and India have complementary expertise in the knowledge of the island of the Indian Ocean. And very concrete partnership in the field of ecological restoration of coral reefs, for example, in the field of the duality of means at sea to find illegal fishing or illegal trafficking, or in the field of the fight against pollution at sea where France has great expertise could be considered. But beyond the island, common areas of effort must be found to stabilize East Coast of Africa and Mozambique Channel, where France and India have common interests and where organized crime at sea is rising. And finally, one last um, field that I would like to mention, even if there are undoubtedly others, is not to limit our maritime partnerships to the Indian Ocean. I can take Two examples where France and India have common interests and could work together, Gulf of Guinea and the Arctic Ocean. Many Indian crews and Indian sailors have fallen victim to piracy attacks in the Gulf of Guinea. And France, for its part, has recognized expertise in the region coupled with a permanent naval presence since 1980. It's also host uh, a maritime safety alert center in the Gulf of Guinea which could benefit Indian sailors. So increased information sharing in this area seems to be an interesting option and beneficial to both parts. When it comes to the Arctic, both France and India are observer, observer of the Arctic Council, or two countries are investing in polar research. And I think an increase in our cooperation is this sector to share on our analysis on climate change first, but also on the maritime and geopolitical upheavals that increase access to the Arctic Ocean will um, be a great way to consider global maritime cooperation between our two countries. That is so fascinating, Dr. Salyu. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us, for telling us about France's unique model for dealing with maritime issues, also for making the case for having a comprehensive understanding of maritime affairs that goes well beyond simply naval issues. And also for telling us about the opportunities for uh, maritime cooperation between India and France. You pointed out not just to opportunities in the Indian Ocean, but you also pointed out that India and France have shared concerns, for example, in the Arctic and even in the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, so once again, thank you so much and thank you for joining us on All Things Policy. Thank you. And if you like this episode, please uh, tell us. You can reach us on Twitter. You can reach us on email. And we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to do many more such episodes in the future. Thank you for listening to All Things Policy. The Takshashila Institution is an independent, non-partisan think tank and a school of public policy. We have education programs lasting one semester and one year that are tailored specifically for people like you. They are all online and you can take them from anywhere. Admissions are now open for our 12-week graduate certificate program in public policy, defense and foreign affairs, technology policy and health and life sciences. Visit takshashila.org.in slash courses to find out more.
If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila Inst or our website takshashila.org.in.